Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Greetings, listeners. Welcome back if you're an old friend, and welcome for the first time if you're a new listener. This is New Books in Science Fiction, and I'm Rob Wolf, and this is the Giant Quantum Mechanical Relativistic Rube Goldberg Machine episode. I can't take credit for the tongue-twisting title of today's show. That goes to my guest today, Vandana Singh, author of Ambiguity Machines and Other Stories, which was among this year's finalists for the Philip K. Dick Award. In addition to being the author of two collections of short stories and many stories that have yet to be collected, Vandana Singh is also a professor of physics who divides her time between India and Boston. And right now I feel very lucky to have her join me via Skype from her home in Massachusetts. Welcome to New Books in Science Fiction. Thank you, Rob. It's a real pleasure and honor to be here. Let me start off by asking you, which came first, an interest in writing fiction or an interest in studying physics? You know, I can't really separate the two very easily because I remember way back when I was a kid growing up in India and uh, looking at the stars from my grandparents' rooftop where some of us would actually lay beds and sleep under the stars the whole night. I remember looking up at the stars and wondering if, you know, some alien was looking back at us. And at the same time, the storytelling urge starts way early. But at the same time, I was really fascinated with the universe. And that's what led to my interest in science. And and when I say fascinated with the universe, I mean with particularly with the non-human aspects. You know, like most of us live in a almost exclusively human world. And it's not to say humans aren't interesting and important, but for me as a child, as a shy child particularly, the non-human universe was fascinating. And so storytelling and science kind of grew simultaneously. I think that's the short answer. I can imagine that your knowledge of physics informs your stories, but does your fiction ever inform your physics, maybe give you new insight into a way to look at the world or solve a problem or maybe even just convey lessons to students? Definitely. It works both ways. So when I think about physics, I think about nature and, you know, what most humans consider inanimate nature to be actually speaking to us through the laws of nature, through the phenomena that we see. And uh, so physics is one way to listen in on the conversations that nature is having or the stories that nature is telling us, whether it's a planet telling the story or a proton or, you know, a molecule or something. And I've found, in fact, that immersion in physics and also that immersion in storytelling, uh, the two things feed off each other. So the way that I think about physics 
is really influenced by the way I think about story. And they're different, but they talk to each other. And particularly, you know, my training is in particle physics. Uh, my background is in that field. But for the past 10 years or so, I've been transitioning to uh, interdisciplinary scholarship of climate change, climate science. And uh, I find that particularly in that area, when I write fiction to explore concepts, that helps me also conceptualize climate science for the classroom and beyond and think of or reframe different ways of thinking about climate change and what's happening to our world. Uh, but yeah, it's, it, that's, uh, it works both ways for me. And, uh, and I think it, I, you know, it's almost like, I guess one analogy I could make is binocular vision. I have two ways of seeing the world and they talk to each other. So you get more depth in one sense. I can imagine that your knowledge of physics might get in the way of a story because you stop yourself and you say, gosh, I can't put that in my story because that's not possible. And yet, even as I ask that, and having read your short stories, I know that there are all kinds of fantastic things that happen in your stories. So I wonder if there are, in fact, any limits that your knowledge of science puts on your imagination. Well, yes and no. And in fact, it's it's certainly true that a knowledge of science puts constraints on what you can write, but it also allows you ways out of those constraints. So for instance, I would never ever in a million years write a story about a spaceship that, for instance, let's say, runs out of fuel suddenly and comes to a sudden stop. You know, that just will not happen. You know, the basic laws of physics, the laws of motion, Newton will tell you that cannot happen. So I would not put any egregious violations of physics in my stories because I you simply cannot do that. But that need not limit the imagination because I can ask myself, what kind of universe would there be where the law of inertia doesn't hold? So you can write an alternative universe story, but there you're deliberately breaking the laws of physics to work differently in a different universe with a different construct. It's not as though you are making a blunder because you happen not to know the laws of physics. You see what I'm saying? And so therefore there's a speculative element to the science that we can do if we are knowledgeable. And I guess it's analogous to using words, using writing to create different structures and so on. You can, you can break the rules of grammar if you, uh, you know, out of ignorance and then it's just a bad piece of writing. But if you, if you know the rules of grammar and then you mess with them or you bend them in a creative way, uh, with full awareness of what you're doing, then that's a different story. So, so I do like to do speculative science, spe speculative physics. You know, I did that in a short story called Wake Rider, for instance. But again, the you know, I would never break a known law of physics without knowing that I was doing it and having a really damn good reason to to do it and to to make it plausible in a in a different universe with different laws of physics. Let me just ask you about one specific thing, the idea of time travel. And I know that in at least one of the stories that's touched on in Ambiguity Machines and other stories. Mm -hmm. And I've often heard it said that anyone who writes about time travel is departing from science. That's because it, all, it would always be impossible. There's too many contradictions. There's too many paradoxes, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. But you've allowed yourself to, to do that. And I wonder how that fits in with your knowledge of physics. Is that a departure into an alternate reality where such a thing might be possible? Or 
I know you also write a lot about kind of almost like dream states where perhaps it's it may not even be a departure from reality in a different way. In other words, not necessarily a scientific departure, but an imaginative departure or dreamlike departure. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a great distinction because after all, science fiction, we don't always read it or understand it in the literal mode. That speculative, that imaginative element, the metaphorical element is really important. So sometimes time travel can serve that purpose. And uh, sometimes it's more important in a story to to have it serve that purpose than it is to really think about, well, okay, is time travel allowed by physics or not? And there are certainly, it's true that there are paradoxes, uh, the most famous one being the going back in time and killing your grandfather one. But the thing is that the unknown allows for so much creativity that you can you can figure ways around those things. And, you know, time is a weird thing. Time is really weird. I don't think we really have a good grasp on it. We know that it's weird in part because of relativity, but it's, you know, what is, even if you look at subjective time, you wonder like, or I wonder anyway, that what what does that mean? What does the flow of time mean for me, immersed as I am in the time stream? Is it possible to step outside it and look at it uh, as an observer? And then would it look different for different people? And, uh, and you know, sometimes time travel can give us uh, or allow us ways to experiment with history and with painful history, or in my case, you know, the history of colonization. So, so yes, uh, I think that time travel can be done well. I, I don't, it's not for me to say whether I do it well or not. It's for other people to judge that. But I think that there are ways of, you know, similar to the way we get around the fact that light is the, the speed of light is the speed limit of the universe. So, so we find our ways around those things. Tell me about the journey to publication of Ambiguity Machines and other stories. For one thing, did you write the stories with this particular collection in mind, or did you decide to combine them after they were written? It was mostly the latter. I was actually thinking about a collection about three years ago, and because partly because I was berating myself for my failure to write a novel. And uh, and that the only reason why I haven't written one is because of lack of time, because I have a very intense day job. I love the day job, but it doesn't leave much time talking of time. So all I can do most of the time is to find a little oasis, a temporal oasis in the summer and uh, write some stories and short stories at that. So I had I looked back about three years ago at what I had written and found that, hey, that's enough for a collection. And then, you know, I happened to run into Gavin Grant at Small Beer Press, and that's a press I greatly admire for the kinds of works they publish and how they, they really support their authors. And I talked to him about it, and, uh, you know, sometime later, there it is, my new collection. And then, uh, to me, my audience in India is also equally important. So I spoke to uh, Zuban Press in New Delhi, and the Indian edition came out a few months after the, the American one. So you do your own agenting, essentially, it sounds like. Yeah, that's what I do when I have time. <laughs> Let's dive into some of the stories. It, it seems to me that many of your stories explore 
similar themes, and there's so many to choose from, but I'll just pick a few that struck me as I was reading. There's nostalgia for the past, so that ties into the time theme. Uh, People are thinking about their childhoods. There's mothers yearning for children, Mm -hmm. and there's children yearning for mothers. And there's definitely a sense that reality is slippery, that people aren't always what they seem or perspectives suddenly shift. And what you thought was one thing was really another. Since you return to these ideas frequently, what about them? And, you know, you can pick any of them or all of them or a different one. Mm -hmm. But what about them fascinates you? I think it's in part, it's my own experience of uh, having come to this country as a graduate student. And uh, I had no intention of of remaining. In fact, went back and did a postdoc in India. And the way my life worked out was that I did end up coming back here. So I'm sort of an accidental immigrant. And I keep thinking about what my life would have been had I stayed on in India or, you know, who knows, gone somewhere else. We have multiple possible world lines, I suppose. So in part, it's my own experience of looking back at familiar shores from far away that makes me want to examine what what do connections and relationships and distances mean? And what are the dif- different kinds of distances that we have in terms of our distance from each other as human beings, in terms of our distance, the geographical distance, uh, our distance from other uh, non-human living beings, and so on. So connection is particularly something that I feel seems to have different rules in America. In India, I grew up in a very kind of relational uh, way. You know, I was part of a web of relationships, uh, family, friends, neighbors, the local street dogs, the local birds, all of that. And relative to that in America, our existence here is much more atomized. Uh, We are much more individualistic. You have to kind of negotiate connections in a much more wary or, you know, step by step way. There's much more of a sense of personal space. And so that that cultural difference was really fascinating to me. So I try to explore it. Perhaps uh, I'm not an anthropologist. I can't pretend to be one, but trying to at least wear the hat of an anthropologist, someone going to a different culture and studying it, whether that culture is on Mars or some other planet or here in the US, or, you know, when I go back home to India, you know, I call both places home. Uh, You know, when you can have two, why not? Uh, But when I go back home to India, then, you know, there's this this feeling of estrangement there too uh, under certain circumstances because India is changing very rapidly. So all of the themes you mentioned are things that I'm curious about and I like to explore in fiction. Well, I heard in what you said also another theme which relates to these others, which is this feeling of isolation that I think a lot of your characters experience Mm -hmm. and a sense of loss. And I'd like to talk about one story in particular. I don't know if I'm going to say the name of it right, but it's the story from which I borrowed the title for today's episode. And the story is called Parapatia. Uh, yeah, I'm, you know, <laughs> I'm not quite sure. I think it's Peripatia, but it's a Latinish word, I think. So I'm, I'm just about as clued in as you are on that. Well, that sounds about right. Peripatia. Yeah. So that, mm-hmm. that sounds more, more Latin. 
so one thing that's hard to miss about the story is that it's about a physicist. And in this case, her name is Sujata, and she's working on a paper about the Higgs field. But it's not challenging enough, it sounds like, for her to write just a straightforward paper. And she complains to her partner that she'd rather write a paper called The Higgs Field Considered as a Metaphor for the Entanglement of Matter in Time. And a bit earlier, I think you referred to physics as a metaphor, as a way to be metaphorical. And I wonder if you could explore that idea a little bit more. Oh, well, uh, I wish that Sujata were here to tell me how to phrase that. Uh, but since she isn't, I'll do my best. Uh, I think I think that sometimes when we do, um, you know, one of the things that really bothers me about how we think about the world is that we split it up into all these different disciplines and fields that have impenetrable walls between them. And one of the reasons I love science fiction and I love writing science fiction is that it allows us to make those walls porous or to break them down altogether. And then you can look at the human and the physical all on the same page. And, and so in, in science, the way it is now, and I think that science has changed over the ages, and I think that it's going to change possibly even within my lifetime. Uh, but the way it is now, you kind of check your emotions in at the door and your feelings about being a scientist or feelings about what you study, and then you study whatever it is you are studying. You create an objective distance between the two things. And I get that that comes from the need for us to eliminate our biases and to really listen to what you know nature is telling us and all of that, which really isn't that simple because, after all, you know, the paradox is that here we are, a part of the universe, studying the universe or studying another part of it. And so how can we claim full objectivity? Because, you know, there's a kind of certain circularity about that. So instead, why not be upfront and say that, hey, I'm this traveler in this universe and, you know, I don't know who or what I am and I'm fascinated by this thing. And so... I am trying to hear what this thing is saying to me, whether it's a proton or a rock or a planet. Uh, but at the same time, the only way I can really hear it and be authentic about it is, is to acknowledge that who I am as a human, as uh, this little splinter of the universe, you know, conversing with another little splinter of the universe. And so, so there's that beauty in physics. There's a beauty in our relationship with nature with the inanimate world that, that well, why not acknowledge that? And why not think about it in different ways? And, um, and you know, I often wonder, like, like, if you really take, let's say something like uh, a carrot, okay, <laughs> and you ask people, and I've actually tried this with a bunch of colleagues, what does this carrot mean to you? Well, if you're a psychologist or if you're an anthropologist or a bi biologist or whatever, you know, you can, you can look at that carrot and say, oh, this means, you know, molecular structure, this, that, or if you're a nutritionist, you look at it a certain way and so on and so forth. But ultimately, a carrot is all those things, but it's also beyond all those things. It's a carrot. And adding another layer to it, our relationship with the carrot is also important. So ultimately, we, we should not forget to eat it up because that's our relationship to it, right? Um, Richard Feynman said something rather similar about a glass of wine that he said you could see all of the sciences in a glass of wine, but then we shouldn't forget that the purpose is to drink it up. 
So in one sense, for me, my purpose is to immerse myself in the universe and be part of it. And so, so the story allows me to do that, and particularly this story. Physics always seems to hold out to me the promise of being able to finally understand the fundamentals of how the universe works. And yet, whenever I read current explanations for the state of physics today, what we know today, and it talks about string theory, or even if it talks about you know the theory of relativity and the relativity of time and quantum mechanics, forget it, you know, quantum mm-hmm. mechanics and Schrodinger's cat and all these things just raise more questions in my mind ultimately than answers. And mm-hmm. it feels like in a way, although physics and one thinks of science as something really solid, it really is a mystery, which is something I think your stories underscore because they really delve into what's mysterious about the world and about people's relationships with it. Yeah, I think that all the advances in physics really lead us to more and more questions. And I think that they are subject to the frame that we bring to it. And I don't mean that the way certain French philosophers mean that, you know, when they say that, oh, all science is a social construct and so on. That's not what I'm talking about at all. But there are ways of looking at things, uh, even within the history of physics, where you have one formulation of a certain phenomenon, you have another equally good formulation of the same phenomenon, but then, you know, for various reasons, you choose one over the other. So I think that we bring frames to it and then we we hit the limits of those paradigms. And then we, you know, when we come across a phenomenon that we can't explain, and that's what uh, the famous uh, physicist and philosopher of science, uh, Thomas Kuhn, talked about when he said that, you know, science moves through uh, revolutions, through paradigm shifts. So, you know, Back in the earlier days of particle physics, when people were just trying to figure out what the standard model looks like and, you know, the notion of unifying the four fundamental forces of nature, then it seemed like that was the holy grail. And once you had that, well, that was it. You could explain everything. And yet we we do have a standard model and it's very successful in many ways. We have not been able to unify gravity and quantum mechanics, although, you know, there are various attempts at uh, various levels of success. But when you really come down to it, those fundamental forces, even if there was a grand unification, they do not allow us to understand the universe at all scales. If you understand quarks, that does not help you understand why a particular snowflake formed the way it did, uh, much less why you know a certain cloud has a certain formation at a certain time and place. So I think one of the things that modern day physics has not yet embraced is a sort of third revolution and ongoing revolution in the sciences is complex systems. And that's one reason why, for instance, why we can't quite get a handle on climate change. We can't see it in a sufficiently holistic way as yet. So there's a lot more to discover. And ultimately, you know, we are really discovering ourselves um, through all this. Like, who are we when we look at a plant or a quark or, or whatever? So, so it's a fascinating journey. And do you think we'll ever figure out a theory of reality that holds together? Or is it possible that the human mind and our abilities will hit a wall that we simply can't go beyond? I mean, as if we are 
as ants are to us, we are to the universe, and our brains can only comprehend and grasp so much, and we'll, we'll always remain frustrated. There'll always be something that doesn't quite fit together. Well, uh, I, I think that it may not be too wise of us to compare ourselves to ants, because everything that I've been reading about, you know, what we're discovering about other species is that they're different kinds of intelligences, and you know, perhaps in some way they're better than ours. But that aside, I don't know, and I hope that we'll never find that the universe is not so simple that we would find the key to everything. I think that it's an infinite onion, right? You take off one layer and there's another and there's another. And the fascination is in that and in evolving our, our view of the universe and ourselves. And I think there's always going to be something new. And in part, it is because of our limitations as human beings that we can perhaps only, unless we really widen our imaginations to, a, to in a way that we can't imagine right now, that we can only see in a certain way, we are limited by our senses, we are limited by our bodies, the environment in which we evolved, all of that shapes the concepts that we come up with. And um, the, the one freedom we have is the imagination. And if we can really let that rip, then uh, you know who knows where we'll be. But even as we increase our understanding, I think um, maybe there's a theorem that someone will write in the far future that the more understanding you have, the more there is, uh, you know, the, the more unknowns there are and the more questions there are. And I think I would enjoy that universe better than one that was so simple that once you have the key, that's it. Well, that's good. I like your embrace of the mystery. Mm -hmm. <laughs> So let's talk about one more story. How about the one from which your collection gets its title, Ambiguity Machines, an Examination. Mm -hmm. And it also touches on a number of themes that recur throughout the collection. It's also interestingly structured because it's really three stories within one story. And each main character of each story is grappling with a, a device or some sort of machine which basically performs some mysterious function. They're almost, they almost appear to us as magical because in one instance, there seems to be time travel. In another, an archaeologist escapes isolation. There's that theme of isolation by entering a community, a space where she becomes united with other people almost in a, a single organism. As you were describing your background in a tightly knit extended family in India, I was thinking, oh, that's almost a metaphor for that. As she enters this space where if someone scratches their arm, she feels the itch and she feels the scratch. Well, another theme actually in two of the stories is that people seem to have lost the people they love and they're searching for them. I just wondered if you could maybe talk about uh, ambiguity machines. And, and I guess this idea of machines that really are kind of mysterious. I mean, unknown inventors, or in one case, the man invents the machine, but it does things he didn't expect it to do. It's really almost like inanimate objects taking on a life of their own and going far and beyond what one would think is possible. Yeah, that was that was a interesting story to write. Um, and, you know, one of the things that I do when I write, well, one of the things I don't do is to plan the story ahead of time. 
And sometimes the story comes about because I write a sentence and then I wonder where that's going to lead me. So I write another sentence and after a few sentences, I have a sense of direction. In this particular story, the immediate impetus was a friend telling me about a weird dream he had uh, about looking into a device and, you know, seeing kind of the wind in it or something floating in its clouds or something like that. And I thought, well, uh, Hmm. So that stirs my imagination. So the first story I wrote, and it wasn't even intended to be a triptych or anything like that, or to have a frame, was basically the story of a device in which a man is looking. So that's all I had from my friend's dream, was that a man is looking into a device where he sees, you know, wisps of wind and cloud. And so I started that, writing that, and then it suddenly became clear to me what that story was about, and I finished it. And then it suggested itself to me, or the story was talking in my head and saying, hmm, that's an interesting thing. Well, I wonder what other weird devices there could be. And so I came up with two more. And then I wanted to find a way to link them because it seemed like they were linked. In fact, there's aspects of the story that are common in one triptych versus another and so on. And that's where the ultimate framing came in, where it's an examination and you read these three stories about machines that cannot possibly exist and you have to think about and answer some questions. And in a sense, we live in a technological universe. We are really fascinated by and governed by technology. And most of the technology that we have in our lives is imposed on us top down from corporations, from the culture we are immersed in, from the whole enormous industrial mega machine that is modern culture. And uh, one of the things I often uh, wonder about is that what if machines had a different origin? And so I've written stories about machines that are invented by people, by communities based on their it could be their particular circumstance. It could be a scientific question that they're trying to answer. It could be a device that empowers people who are, who are disempowered or whatever. So I'm interested in exploring uh, machines from the bottom up arising as needs from groups of people that are not you know, powerful industries and so on. And an extension of that is the idea of the machine itself. What's the difference between human and machine? And um, you know, the mechanistic view of nature and of human beings is something that has roots in antiquity, but really became pervasive in the culture of Western Europe, starting from, from uh, when clocks became important and uh, knowing uh, how to, knowing the time at sea and knowing a lo location at sea became important. And that was part of the colonial project, that was part of science. And so it makes me wonder whether when we think about the universe as mechanistic and controllable, as we sometimes think about the climate system, uh, or at least some people do, are we making a mistake? Because the more sophisticated machines get, the less they are like Newtonian controllable machines, you know, and we know that with AI and people worrying about AI and so on. So it was from all these impulses that these stories grew, that the triptych, the three uh, pieces of the story grew. And I ponder that question from time to time that when you reach a certain level of complexity, then you cannot treat a machine as a deterministic thing, as an con entirely controllable thing. And then what does it become? And what do we become when we look at it and when we look at ourselves?
You also make me think, as you were describing that, how complex machines have become. The classic case being the iPhone, which <laughs> apparently has so many sophisticated elements to it that it requires all different kinds of specialties, but there's no one person who would be able to assemble mm -hmm. an iPhone, you know, or has the knowledge for all the aspects of it, because there's just so many specialties that are required to make it. That's right. That's right. And and I, I don't have an iPhone, but I don't know whether, you know, perhaps if the iPhone exhibits certain problems, maybe the path to solving them is not always clear or straightforward. So, uh, which is another aspect of something that is complex enough beyond a, t beyond a point. Well, that just feeds the built-in obsolescence. You know, of course, you go to the Genius Bar at the Apple Store to try to get it fixed. And then if they can't fix it, then you buy a new phone. Right. And that just makes the world go around. Yeah. So let me ask you about another theme. Many of the characters in your stories are female scientists. Mm -hmm. And there are these moments where someone might be mocking their ideas or not quite taking them seriously. And that got me thinking about women in science. And I know that there have only been three women who've won the Nobel Prize in physics. It's not about ability or something. You know, it has nothing to do with the quality of women's contributions to the field. So I wonder what your experience has been as a woman in working in the sciences. Well, that's a can of worms or a Pandora's box. I'm not quite sure which, but but it's a very important question because particularly in the physical sciences, it's still pretty tough for women. And women get pushed into certain roles even now, and women's work is seen as less important or undermined in some way. One, one interesting difference between India and the US is that I never personally experienced discrimination in the sense of people thinking that, oh, she's not smart enough to do science and math because she's female. Never, never experienced that growing up in India, going to college, none of that. In fact, in India, uh, about, I believe, the last statistic I looked at some years ago, among the people who get bachelor's degrees in physics, we have like about 40% women, which is much higher than what we have in the United States and I don't remember off the top of my head what the figure is, but I don't think it's above, it's somewhere between 10 and 20%, uh, I think. So in one sense, although we have plenty of gender issues in India, somehow the assumption that women can't do as well or don't have the ability or whatever is not that strong or strident in India. I was lucky enough not to encounter it myself, but the statistics also show that that's the case. And I think that there is a glass ceiling later on because there are much fewer women in the upper echelons of science. And in part, it's not because people think they can't do it, but that they think their first duty is to their families and so on and so forth. And uh, uh, But here the, in this country, the, the kinds of discrimination or the messaging, the, the negative micro-messaging and sometimes macro-messaging I've come across has been of that nature that, well, a woman, you know, so what do you know kind of thing. So you're automatically assumed to be more touchy-feely. And also there's the assumption that if you are, if you happen to express any touchy-feeliness, that somehow you you must not be as good as at science, you know, which is utterly absurd because you can be a warm, empathic human being and be a first-rate scientist at the same time. But science as we know it, 
originates from a certain historical context and it comes from Western culture and it comes from a very masculine Western culture. And for a very, very long time, women in the West were not considered to have the ability to do science. And the shadows of that are still there. And also the kind of science that the physical sciences, I think, probably lead the way in the highest amount of discrimination and dismissal of women's ideas. In other fields, uh, like I read, for example, that in uh, archaeology, in developmental biology, when women came in, they changed the nature of the field. They realized that some of the interpretations of what the scientists had been doing were actually wrong. And they, you know, they made the field better. They enriched it through being there. And I think that is hopefully going to happen in physics, although not in the same way. If you drop an object, you know, it's going to fall at a certain rate and that's it. But maybe we can bring different frames to the whole problem, different concepts. But it's happening very slowly, I think. And I think that the culture being so, for lack of a better term, masculine in the sense of confrontational, you know, the old fashioned <laughs> construct of, uh, you know, the Western male is, is not attractive to many women and also to men, to increasingly, probably increasingly large number of men, because the culture is so inimical to to just being who you are and being comfortable with who you are, whether you're a warm, fuzzy person or not. And, uh, and certainly it's still tough for women. It's interesting to hear the different perception of female scientists in India versus America. And that makes me wonder about how your work is received in both countries. Do your Indian fans respond differently? Are they drawn to different themes? Do you get different types of feedback compared to your American readers? Well, I guess the honest answer would be, I don't really know because I don't always have access to what my readers think. But from the little data I have, I think that they respond differently I think that the response I get from India appreciates different aspects of my writing. And in the US, when people talk to me about my stories, then they pick up on certain things, uh, particularly that are different from what uh, people in India pick up. And there, there's overlap too, because after all, we are an increasingly globalized world culture. So there is some overlap there as well. Uh, I should say that science fiction is probably, I don't know whether it's equally looked down upon by the literati in both countries, um, but it's definitely, you know, not considered the cream of literature in either place. So, you know, that's another way that, that we experience, uh, I guess, not being taken seriously enough. Although I think that uh, I'm very appreciative for the reviewers and the readers that I have come across in both countries who seem to get what I'm trying to do. And that's the greatest feeling for a writer to, you know, I've flung my voice out there through all these characters and so on. And somebody has heard what I have to say and appreciated it. So, Well, we appreciate your work here at New Books and Science Fiction. And science fiction is the cream of literature on this show. And... I really appreciate your taking the time to, to come on the podcast. Thank you. It was a real pleasure to be here. And, uh, you know, I don't always get asked uh, deep and interesting questions. So thank you particularly for that. You're quite welcome. And thank you for your deep answers. <laughs> All right.
I've been talking with Vandana Singh about her collection of short stories, Ambiguity Machines and Other Stories, which came out last year from Small Beer Press and was shortlisted for this year's Philip K. Dick Award. This is New Books in Science Fiction. Please subscribe to the show if you don't already and leave a review. Our theme music is by Michael Aaron of QuiverNYC.com. The editor-in-chief and founder of the New Books Network is Marshall Poe, and the editor is Leanne Wilson. I'm Rob Wolf. I'm the author of The Alternate Universe. I'm at robwolf.net, and I'm on Twitter at robwolfbooks. Thanks for listening. <laughs>